So, um, hi, my name is Claudia, um, and welcome to panel two. Today, we are going to be hearing from different kids um, than yesterday. So, um, I'm from Santa Rosa, California. That's about an hour north of San Francisco. And um, we're going to be hearing from kids from Kentucky. And where are you from? Uh, Utah, Utah Salt, Lake. Salt Lake. Anybody else? Oakland? Oakland. Oakland. Alaska. Alaska New and York. New York. So I'm going to introduce my um, graduation piece. I think probably some of you heard it um, before. Or I think it was just, I'm not sure. But anyways, um, this is the first piece that I did, and it was about a year ago um, when I graduated. So um, pretty much explains about myself a little bit, but doesn't give it all away. Um, so let's go ahead and hear it. And um, I'm not sure if we explained also that we're from Voice of Youth in um, Sonoma County, California. And we've been there for three years uh, doing our teen radio thing. And this story has been one of our most popular. Uh, this is a few moments, a few minutes into the story. Claudia is, um, this is Claudia on her graduation day. I followed her around with a recorder on that day, and we captured the sounds of her graduating from what's in our area, the alternative uh, school education uh, graduation. So it's a schools for kids who have been expelled or who otherwise are not working um, within the traditional education system. And um, she's going to be going to this graduation, but as we join the story, she is looking at herself in the mirror, I believe in the bathroom, fixing her hair, because I was with her for the whole day. As I was finishing the last curl and putting the last few touches on my face, I took a last look in the mirror and was so amazed at what I saw in that mirror. How it was totally opposite from what I used to see. Like I used to have eyebrows painted on, dark lip liner, and even crunchy hair. Once in my car, on the way to my big event, I described the difficult process of having to buy new clothes and accessorizing to get past the gangster look. It was hella hard for me at first going into a different store, going in how I used to dress, and then buying things that are totally opposite of how I was. It was kind of like, you know, people looked at me and were like, what the hell, but I did it anyways. And while it's gotten easier, I still have to deal with the attitudes of people who think my style's weird. I'm a Mexican and I like rock stuff, and you really don't see that many here, or not that I've seen. It's kind of hard, because like, people look at you and like what the hell what are you doing you know with that belt or you know with that like belt that has the you know the iron little things on it the studs I don't know that's just me I'm trying to see you know who I am Mm -hmm. and as I drove up to the humongous building I was trying to see if my style was right for this event I hope I'm not too dressed up damn as I walked in feeling a huge head rush I could finally see where all my changes had taken me. Everything's changed so much. My whole image, my insides, my thinking. I was looking into a big hall with so many chairs set up, people putting up balloons, laying out the red carpet, but no graduates yet. As the graduates started showing up in our prep room and taking pictures, I compared myself with how the other girls were dressed. And it looked like they got their hair done. I think I fit in good. I fit right into this crowd of people, with all different styles. You might think us, alternative and community school kids, as being big gangsters and druggies, but there was only one difference in the faces being photographed. Ready? I'm going to take two with my camera and then two others. It was in their eyes. Eyes that seemed so much older 
than most kids. Like, we live longer and harder. Left I don't right. remember. I never remember. <laughs> left to the right. Your castle should be on your left side. And in all the craziness of practicing our walk, I kept hoping I wouldn't mess up because this would be a very important walk. We're going to practice that. Okay. Slow down. Slow down. As we worked on getting it right, I was thinking about how much space my family was going to take up. Since they were all coming to cheer me on, they would probably take up a whole row, I thought. And they did. As I could see after I'd walked almost the whole red carpet, my nervousness going away with each step. As I got onto the stage, I looked back and saw my dad smiling and yelling. And I thought how this day was almost more for my parents than it was for me. It's my pleasure this afternoon to welcome everyone. Normally I sit in the back at school, but not today. The whole time I was sitting right in the front row on the stage. Our graduation speaker, Jasmine, was a teen mom with twin boys who laughed and played below the stage while she announced that, although she'd spoken about her struggle to graduate. Today, my speech is not meant to be sad. It's meant to be happy and fulfilling because we, as teen mothers, did it. We proved statistics wrong. So to my fellow teen mothers and classmates, raise your heads and your hands and smile towards the sky. Congratulations, class of 2006. We finally made it out. Through all the good speeches and then the awards, I kept thinking about when it would be my turn to come up. Hi, and finally, they started calling the names. When I heard the crowd cheer for him, I thought, oh, I should have put that too, since I'm also the first high school graduate of my family. But mostly I was just concentrating on making sure I got up at the right time. I was the very last one to go. And I have to say, I think my cheers were the loudest. Claudia Villa. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present to you the graduating class of the year 2000. There was one more step until it was really official, getting the actual diploma. I rushed to the room where I could pick it up, and the first person I showed it to was my dad. Thank you. How beautiful. Thank you, he said. And I didn't even realize he said that until I heard the tape. And I had a lot of my own thank yous to say. To my math tutor, who was with me every day for weeks before I took the exit exam. And my truant officer, who would give me good talks and advice. And my clean and sober teacher, who was nice, cool, and would make me laugh. But just a thank you? After all that? And it doesn't feel right. Because, <laughs> like, they've done so much for me, and then all I say is bye, thank you. Back at home, Dad barbecued some steak, Mom made rice, my sisters jumped around. Cousins joked about how our family had to get a new reputation now. As a family friend, played my electric guitar, I'm trying to learn. I was mostly standing around, just thinking back on my big day, 
and what I want for my future, and if there would even be the money to make it possible. While everyone celebrated, out in the backyard, my dad's dad, my grandpa, was sitting like he always does, all day, on a creaky swing. He said he was thinking of all his 45 grandkids and how they were doing. He'd been visiting us for a month from Mexico, and there had been so many changes, he said. He pointed at the tree above him. When I got here, there were no leaves on the trees, my grandfather said. That tree was bare. Every day, I see it growing its little branches. And now look how pretty it is. So I still haven't learned the electric guitar, so still in the process of that. And um, my teacher that you heard about in the story is here, Eric. So he's here with us on the trip. <laughs> Which is actually Tatiana's boyfriend now, so they weren't before. Her stories are powerful. <laughs> yeah. um, so first up, yes. yeah. So first up, we have Tommy. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and about what we're going to hear. I'm Tommy Anderson. I'm, uh, or I came from Whitesburg, Kentucky, and I'm with uh, Appalachian Media Institute. And uh, I guess they're going to be playing uh, this piece that uh, me and two other kids made uh, during the, I think it was the fall, about uh, some of the stories and and legends and, and legends and stuff around the place that we live. In Eastern Kentucky, finding a good story is an easy task, where storytelling is a product of a good ear and time to listen, and a majority of the people have both. We'll start off with the story that my grandpa tells. It happened on top of Kelly Mountain, in a time when if a man had a name for being bad, it had to be kept. Uncle James was a bad man, but the same was said of Terrell Cox. No, Terrell Cox was... Uh... He wasn't no law. Mm-hmm. He did. He just had something against Uncle James. He's gonna kill him or something. I don't know what it was. Cause he heard, you know, he's a bad man. Uncle James was, and he had his own gang with him all the time. And he go to fill the whole corner. He wore a bonnet and a dress. And that uh, Terrell Cox sent him word he's gonna kill him. And just. Uh, you know, that's the reason he wore the dress and bonnet, hoeing corn in the field. He done that longer or too long, and he told uh, Grandpa Kelly, he said, I quit wearing a dress, and I quit wearing a bonnet. He said, I'm going to kill him. He did. He met him right up there, top of the mountain. And here a guy come around the mountain on the horse. He stepped out in the road. and said, Turl Cox, I heard you was going to kill me. Yep. He gave him the first shot. Sure did. And he killed him right there. Every generation has some story of rebellion to tell. This is one of ours. My aunt, I had did some favor for her. She pays me in 
five coupons of $2 Wendy coupons. <laughs> and so I don't spend them. I was like, hey, man, I just copied these on my new printer, dude, you know. We was in fourth period one day, and we was cutting them and making them look nice, and we stuck them in his wallet. And that weekend, uh, we was riding around Hazard listening, you know, a bunch of music. And uh, we finally got to Whitesburg. Uh, I'm not Whitesburg, but Hazard. And we went in Walmart, and we get back in SUV. And uh, on the way home, we all starting to get a little hungry, but nobody's got any cash. So me and Smoking Joe, we got the idea, you know, to stop by Wendy's and let's try this. I remember that because I remember before you guys went in, I was like, just buy, you know, like five or six dollars worth. You know, I was like, if you keep it small, maybe they won't notice. We well, walk in there and uh, we we's at the cashier and uh, we's looking at the the, the the menu and it was uh, me and Smoking Joe and our friend Russell was in there and uh, we said. You know, we want 17 junior bacon cheeseburgers and 17 fries and 17 small Cokes. And uh, we want a number six, plain, biggie size. And the Russell was in the background screaming, I want one of them fruit salads because it looks cool. <laughs> like one fruit cup. Yeah, one fruit cup. <laughs> and a fruit salad. That he didn't even eat. Yeah, and I'm like, uh, I pull out my wall, I'm like, uh, y'all do take Wendy's coupons, don't you? And she's like, uh, how much are you going to pay you in Wendy's? Guys like, uh. Every bit of it, I got it. <laughs> and I pull out my wallet, you know, I'm like, two, four, six, eight, and I just lay him down, and she's like, I'm going to have to go talk to my manager. I was like, that ain't good. So she takes one of them back there, and, you know, they're they're kind of cut. They're not perfectly looking. And I see her back there. She's talking to the manager. She's showing it to him, and he's just back there shaking his head. She comes up. She's like, yeah, we can take them. <laughs> so she takes them. We take there about five minutes, and we get the whole order. We start to walk out, like a state policeman walks by. is like, man, they done got us for fraud, dude. <laughs> he goes in and orders it, and we just go back to the SUV. And <laughs> Drive back to Ledger County. <laughs> Very safely. That was a good night. It was a good night. That was a wild one. Pine Mountain, the biggest in Letcher County, second largest in Kentucky, has some of the most feared roads around. When we heard about the legend of a man skating down it backwards, we had to get the story straight from the horse's mouth. They was going to a party, you know, mm-hmm. up past the legion, um, up there by the towers. Right. Okay, across from the Little Shepherd Trail. And they was going out uh, toward the trail there, I was going to a party. So we went up there, and then by that time, we was getting ready, everybody's ready to leave, you know, later. And they'd all pretty well been drinking, and I was the designated driver. So they wasn't going to let me drive. And um, I said, New York, I, said, I came to drive, so are you going to let me drive? They said, no. I said, we can drive off here. I said, well, if you don't care, I said, pop the trunk. When they did, I got my skates out. And they said, what are you doing? I said, they said, are you going to skate off here? I said, yeah. I said, believe I will. They said, no, you won't. You don't have the guts. So I turned around, put my roller skates on, and I came off Pine Mountain. And you know, that's that's how I came off from up there. Yeah. And then... Um, they was right behind me, but they didn't think that I would actually do it. They figured I'd go a little ways and then stop, you know. Uh, but I didn't. I turned I came on off Pine Mountain. But they followed me all the way. Hurt Creek. About got attacked by the dogs down there. Oh, really? That's down there at the mouth of Hurt Creek. Yeah. And then I went on out toward McDonald's. And then, you know, uh, uh, it's not been the first time I've come off the mountain like that, you know. It's yeah. just something different, you know. Yeah. I get bored don't want to go down there and skate around or don't want to carry them off with me as I go. I'll turn around and put them on and just skate on off. 
So that's my, that's pretty much my transportation, you know, yeah. cheap, like I said before, cheaper on gas, yeah. you know. <laughs> I mean, well, in the beginning, it wasn't an effort to tell stories. It was just conversing with friends, and I guess maybe the the interest came when I realized that some other people were being entertained by these stories. They always told a tale about old Grant Blair, who had an incredibly large and crooked nose, and he said he was riding a mule right up about where Seven runs now, and up just this side of the school up there. Um, a beautiful young woman stepped out of the weeds or woods or whatever and offered him a peach, and uh, he took a bite of that peach, and he, he immediately, he rolled on off up the road, but he immediately felt his nose start to draw. And uh, I remember seeing old Grant, and his nose was over under one eye. And he always told that's how how that came to be. Of course, he may have had a, who knows, had a stroke at the same time he ate the peach or what. But it, it apparently happened. It happened in one day, anyhow. His nose was big already, but the crookedness came in one day. Maybe, yeah, that's a definite possibility. Maybe he was, uh, he behaved in a manner uh, not meeting the approval of the young lady and she whacked him across the beak with a stick or whatever and, and, and put that nose over under one eye. I know he was accused of that, but he always told that when he took a bite of that peach, it started drawing and when he looked back around, the girl was gone. Behind every face there is a story, and in every story there is something to be gained, a life lesson, a higher understanding, or the skill of telling a story. These stories that we hear may be stretched beyond truth and told by a wide variety of people, but all that matters is that we listen to what they have to say. So, um, Tommy, before we, before we take uh, questions from the audience, is there any parts where you're listening and you're like, oh, you know, wish you had done it differently? I think we were talking something about that. Or your favorite parts, too, you want to comment on? Um, just, just like me, the, the guy who told the story about the, the peach, like he was real into like oral history and everything. And he told a ton of stories, and like, really, we just used that one because it was the shortest, and we were crunched for time. But that—that's like the only really thing that I wasn't into. But I think that the story my grandpa told kind of fixed that. I think you said that you wish you'd gotten um, across a little bit more of the importance of storytelling, or something that when you saw that, that same man, I think you told the peach story, like when you saw him hear the story that he seemed kind of disappointed or something yeah that that that's the way it seemed whenever i saw like whenever i saw him hear the story he just seemed like uh he wasn't even reacting to the to to anything at all but i don't know i i was probably just being paranoid <laughs> well i think it's a, a something that's interesting to me about the piece is the challenge of getting across in your local community a story to the importance of it because i think we can all we all recognize that stories are important but the fact that it's this elaborate tradition i think is a hard thing to get across especially in a really short story but i think it does a a lovely job any comments or questions from the audience real quick 
I've got a question about the first one. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, in, in a, the, the, the teen radio programs have different orientations and different training purposes and so forth. And so I'm interested in how much your program stresses introspection, looking inside yourself and talk, because the, the piece, it was beautiful, but it was mostly, then I went here, then I went there, then I looked at this, then I looked at that. And you hear some of the pieces and it's like, I felt this and, you know, and then I thought that and then, and, and it's more about my personal inner looking feelings about the things that I'm going through. And I'm just wondering whether that was a conscious decision, whether it's part of the way that the program trains the, the people in it, or why it was that it was the way that it was rather than a different way. Well, we train our youth not to feel. So no. <laughs> um, <laughs> because we figure it's going to be easier later on. No. <laughs> um, I'll take that question. Or... Um, well, I'll say a little on that. You okay. Add. Um, well, this was more just like of following me through the day, through my graduation. And it's something that, you know, me and her and just decided how to make it like that, you know. And it, not everybody from, you know, our voice of youth do, do the stories the same. Every piece is different, so... I think this is more about the event of it, um, that alternative school graduation is something that's not covered in the local news at all, and it's this Im intense experience for everyone involved because it's usually the first person in your family to go to college, or you've, you know, you're busing in the kids from the probation camp to graduate and then busing them back. So it's kind of the event it was focused on, but we do have a 17-minute story that is a tour of a girl named Cindy's brain. <laughs> so if you want um, some more introspection, but I think, yeah, it depends on the story so we, tr I, we try to do as much introspection as possible yeah. it's hard in the time frame I think um, in the tradition of storytelling in a way we're going to move on to the this corner of the um, area we've got uh, Tony and Noah from two different um, uh, youth programs Noah representing a youth program still rather youthful but <laughs> Um, Tony, do you want to say a little bit about yourself? We're going to play a little clip from your story. Sure. Um, my name is Tony Glavinek. I'm a senior this year, and I'm a student with the Alaska Teen Media Institute. Um, the piece that I'll be presenting today is a um, journalistic piece. Most of the um, pieces that ATME does are more news features, um, along with some creative pieces. This is one I did in March of this year about gay straight alliance clubs in Anchorage high schools. There's eight ma major high schools in Anchorage, and they all have um, gay straight alliance clubs, which is a fairly big deal for um, that many schools in one community to have that level of support. Um, so I talked with several members of the community and former high school students about um, their experience in high school and what kind of role these clubs play um, in supporting students. So we're going to hear uh, the first two minutes or so of it uh, because we want to sort of um, 
piggyback it? I never know what that means exactly. <laughs> uh, together with uh, Noah's story. And I think what got us going was the idea of youth being able to look at where activism in a certain area uh, might be. We're going to hear about the area of immigration in a moment um, and the area of, of police community relations. Um, but this is a specific uh, area of um, gay, uh, lesbian, bisexual issues and just how the challenge now might be different than before. For example, before there was even GSAs, it was a different challenge to establish them. So I think that, Tony, you get at a good um, introduction to that topic. A 1995 study in Seattle found that approximately 9% of high school students identified as LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgendered. Studies of the general public, some dating back to the 1950s, have shown similar results. Whether or not that is true today, there are LGBT students at every high school in Anchorage. While it's not always easy to be different, things have definitely improved for these students over the years. One of the biggest reasons has been Gay Straight Alliance Clubs, or GSAs, in Anchorage schools. I remember driving with some friends to uh, the Bluffs to look at um, Sleeping Lady, and uh, we were parked next to this car, and right when we pulled up and I, and I got out of the car, these girls rolled down their windows, spit at us, and called us dykes. So um, that was difficult, but I did experience a lot of harassment my first two years of high school. To Nicole Poole, a recent Chugiak graduate, joining the GSA made a big difference in her feelings about high school. It did eventually. At first I was uncomfortable because it was kind of cliquish, um, but I started leading the GSA my junior year and senior year. And um, we became a fairly strong group, and I felt the environment of my school change around me. But what exactly is a GSA? Barb Clark is the advisor for the Gay Straight Alliance at West High School. We kind of try to strike a balance between being a social group, a support group, and also doing um, some education and work toward equality for GLBT kids. Since we've been here for about six years, there's more awareness. In small ways, you don't hear things that you would hope you wouldn't ever hear in a hallway quite as often. Kids will say, oh, that's gay, when they mean something bad, and then they'll kind of stop and look and go, oh, I mean that's wrong. That's gay was was pretty common um, synonym for that's dumb. Um, so that was a little look at, at where things are with um, with the movement in the moment. And Noah, if you could um, move up to the mic a little mm-hmm. bit and then maybe... Tony and Noah talk back and forth about how does your program and its intergenerational um, or, uh, initiative look at the, the different activism at different moments in history? Okay. Well, I lead a uh, youth radio project in San Francisco called Out Loud Radio, which is specifically focused on LGBT youth issues. And um, we've been um, doing a project, well, which actually this piece explains better than I could, but um, do you want to? Yeah, I will play the piece. Yeah, why don't we just listen to that? Generally, you have um, younger and older people um, talking and hearing stories about how things have been in certain periods of history, so here we go. Edit. This is Intergenerational Storytelling Project. Intergenerational Storytelling Project. 
A group of various youngsters met regularly for six weeks at New Leaf to hear about the life stories of gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender elders. Not only did we want to hear from the elders, the elders were excited to hear from the youth as well. The group consists of eight youth and ten elders. We would chat about topics such as gay marriage, how the media portrays the LGBT community, and events from LGBT history. Not to mention the bars that the elders went to. In the army in uh, Kunming, China at that time, there were several gay bars. In fact, two run by the 14th Air Force. There were, there were uh, many, many gay guys in China, and that was paradise for me. There was a, the French consulate in Kunming. He had a big place, and he had a straight bar here and a gay bar here. And you never know where to go because it was sort of mixed. And I went in and sat down by this guy one time. He was very nice looking. And he looked at me and he said, are you gay? I never heard the word gay before. I said, I don't know. I said, what does it mean? He said, well, let's find out. So we did. <laughs> I did. And I was. I am. Always will be. Yeah. Okay. So maybe you think that hearing the stories from the elders would be boring. But you know what? The elders are actually pretty funny. Let me tell you, the seniors love having the youth around. How do you guys perceive the youth? I think they're very exciting because, and I think because of, of what some of us have done, it makes it easier for them to come out and be out, or if they decide not to, they don't have to. And then there's a place, places for them to go to if they have questions and hotlines and things like that, which, which I think is very important, which... I never had when I was a kid. Um, my parents, um, they don't really allow me to even really talk about being gay at my house. Like, there's one designated day of the week when I get to talk about being gay, and that's Wednesday. And even then, they don't really like it. They always tell me, oh, it's inappropriate to be around my sisters saying that. It's inappropriate to talk about. And then my sisters all chime in, like, told me that I was, uh, that I had a choice to be gay. Because I look like a very straight girl, um, you know, I get kind of prejudiced for it because a lot of people think that a bisexual is just sort of people who um, either, you know, want to just be trendy or bisexual is a one step towards being a lesbian or being gay. Sometimes the youth and elders did not see eye to eye, but... Despite the clash of opinions between the youth and the elders, both generations were supportive of what each person had to say. Did I mention that the seniors have some serious kick-ass attitude? Back in the day, and I'm talking about the 50s and 60s, a little bit of the 70s, there were no visible role models for, for uh, lesbians, uh, or stud bras as we call them in the black community. And um, I had heard of a, a black woman who, when she entered the room, men would shiver. I said, wow, I like her. Uh, she was a dyke, and she was an armed robber, and her name was Billy Ware. She was also a drug addict. That I, I just didn't associate with. 
but I associate with the fact that she was the most powerful woman I had ever seen in the hood. And it was serious. When she walked down the street, men would get out of her way because she was crazy. And she would do a little bit of anything. She was a notorious uh, lover. She was notorious for, for, for taking wives away from husbands. Uh, she was notorious for shooting up joints. She was just Jesse James on the set. And I admired her. So I modeled myself after her. I wanted to be dangerous, so I hung with guys who were gamblers. It got me a, a, a living. I, I really was able to, to make a lot of money and live a very exciting life. That story was by Cindy Pham from our, she was, she's 18 years old, I think. So, Tony, I just wondered, having done stories about some similar issues that they're talking about, um, where do you see the activism in this area? Where, what's the issue of the day? Does it, does it help you or does it interest you to hear how, how people, you know, had to deal with things before? Well, I, I actually do a lot of work um, in LGBT activism. So it's it's definitely important and inter- interesting to go back and look at um, the hi- history of the movement since the, the late 1960s and um, see what's worked and what hasn't in different political climates and social climates to try and figure out how to work um, towards equality in 2007. And um, on you know on the flip side, uh, what we're finding is that the seniors that we're talking with in these intergenerational groups um, are just so hungry to hear about what young people are doing. So um, I think I might come back and play them the story uh, that you heard the beginning of there about GSAs because some of them just, these you know folks in their 80s or late 70s, um, it's a completely foreign concept to them how, this, how such a thing could work. And so a, a radio piece like that, told by a young person, really, I think, would uh, help with that. And I think um, it, it's interesting to me to think about how, for example, in our area, say the issue might be, or with the students we work with more, might be Latino activism. And a lot of kids, I think, get this sort of despairing attitude, like nothing's ever going to change, we can't ever do anything about this, and it's always a mess. But hearing how things used to be and how they've kind of They've changed, and obviously there's still the issues, but the problem sort of evolves and then goes to a new level, um, I think is what we're dealing with now before it might have been um, a different kind of struggle. But it was interesting to me to hear that it was more about, in the GSA story, about a word, about, say, the word gay and when the word gay is used, whereas before it was maybe Stonewall or things where people are physically sort of rising up um, in in a sort of um, manifestation in that way. So it's a very different moment, I think. Well, and that, that's definitely something that varies depending on location. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are yeah. uh, GSAs and, um, and groups in other states. Like uh, Anchorage high schools are, are in pretty good shape. Um, there's a lot of other places where students are um, verbally harassed much more seriously, physically harassed in schools, school administrators who don't do anything about it when they should. Um, so there, there's still a lot of work going on in different places. Um, Anchorage just happens to be lucky. 
in a lot of ways. I'd really like to see some intergenerational uh, stuff going on in other areas, so that's just an idea to give a, someone out there. It's an amazing, amazing thing to see happen. You just get folks together in a room. and uh, I wanted to know, um, when you were producing your piece about GSAs, who uh, did you think was your audience, and did you want something to happen with them, you know, to change their uh, perceptions about something, or you know, get a policy changed, or anything like that? Um, there, there wasn't any specific action that I was looking for in this piece. It, it, this was uh, more of an educational effort um, to try and, and raise awareness, because um, obviously not there are people who are outside the um, school community and even outside of secondary schools aren't going to know very much about what's going on in schools. Um, and the, the piece goes on to talk about, um, I interviewed a woman from PFLAG, that's Parents, Families, and Friends of Lesbians and Gays in Anchorage, who talks about um, where things are going to go in the future and the need for more education and support at younger ages, like in a junior high school. Well, I think we're going to um, go on to, there's another area of activism to discuss, and then maybe if you have questions about our comments about um, what we've just been talking about, you can ask it after we touch on some other things. Uh, we're going to now hear. Um, so we're going to hear from Anya. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and a little bit about <coughs> your piece. Uh, I'm Anya. I'm a production uh, or project associate at Youth Radio in Oakland, California, and um, this piece uh, that we're about to play was uh, back when we were in Berkeley before we moved to Oakland. A uh, very real situation happened to me. That's uh, been happening to me probably as far back as I can remember. And uh, I uh, had the, the, the presence of mind to put it into a piece. And um, just play it. <laughs> and this, this is, is about racial profile. <laughs> it's a longer. It was a played on NPR's morning edition or yeah, all things I'm, I'm but, all Okay, you have to guess which part was taken out for the morning edition because <laughs> uh, we're gonna play the longer version. Yes. So you have to guess which part they didn't take. The first time I fit the description of a suspect, I was ten, and the more I was stopped for conversations with police, the more I began to make adjustments in my life. I had to learn not to stand outside the house with nondescript cups or ride four deep to the club. Some of my friends like to keep all the registration papers in their glove box ultra updated. Others get nervous about how many people in their back seats are wearing ball caps. For as long as the term racial profiling has been around, fools have been denying the phenomenon exists. But I contend every black man in America at some point will be racially profiled or harassed by the police. It's a part of the DNA of our experience in the United States. Red, white, and blue lights blaze the sky like it's the 4th day of July. But it's not the 4th day of July, it's a Friday night in the winter. Oh, firecrackers, these crackers fire at niggas. Born black and your birthright is the fear of what the boys in black and blue do. You ain't even gotta know what happened in the past and know what might happen to you. One morning last spring, while I was parking my car at the BART train station, a police officer looked at me and ran my license plate. He entered a false number, and my Oldsmobile Royal Brome 88 came back as a stolen Honda. So now I'm a car thief. My friend Elmer and I weren't prepared for what happened next. 
Our conversation was interrupted very rudely and abruptly. I mean, just how did what happened? In the distant background, I hear a voice of a police officer saying, everybody move aside. And I turn around to see the barrel of this officer's handgun staring me down face to face. And he tells me to step back and stand on the concrete. He said, you know, brothers like you, I know how y'all get down. Y'all be in the streets. Y'all steal cars. He's like, you know, he's not talking to us like, you know, like citizens. You know, he's talking to us like we're convicted criminals that he's delivering to Massachusetts for multiple murders. The BART police officer realized his mistake on the triple check, and after embarrassing himself, he let us go. That wasn't the first time a police officer came at me sideways, but I was floored by the reality that an officer's simple mistake was enough for him to approach me at gunpoint. And out of the night, sirens blare, lights flare up, I'm scared but doubly terrified since realizing not everybody is as scared as I some people's fears a whole lot more subtle. Oh my God, my parents are gonna kill me. Forget that. I'm worrying about this cop saving my parents that trouble. The situation is so bad. I know brothers who are putting magnets and stickers on their cars that read, support our troops, because they think displays of patriotism will stop them from getting profiled. That strategy would only work if you could slap a Caucasian bumper sticker on your black self. But please believe when I got my new car, I went to the auto parts store and bought a case of oil, transmission fluid, and a couple of American flags. You know, just to keep my car running. I don't want to dishonor them all because they are good ones I shouldn't blame. But I can't help but view cops the same way some cops view blacks. And therefore... Them fools all look the same. I can't tell the difference. Good cop, bad cop, that one, this one. All I think is black man trying to hit up the club, policeman trying to hit me with one. When you go from being a black boy to a black man, you start to understand police will use deadly force on you. I could sneeze and get shot to death. The next time police harassment happens to me, I'm demanding a certificate of release. It's a document saying a person was detained but not arrested and then let go, almost like a receipt for racial profiling. More than just another story to add to my experiences with out-of-pocket police. For NPR News, I'm Anya Howell. So, um... From that experience I described in the piece, it like took um, it took a long time for that piece to actually get to anything tangible, uh, let alone NPR uh, worthy, if you will, um, as it were. Uh, yeah, so I mean, just the, the whole four to six months um, was was like consistent on how to, how to tell the story, what what um, what could I relay it to, and then most importantly, what was the point which at the end we heard like was the certificate of release, which I've been, you know, I encountered. Um, oh, yeah, I should also explain out of pocket, meaning um, unruly or um, um, inappropriate um, police officers. And I had never seen this form that I had seen when um, this, this day happened. And it was, it was so crazy because there were news cameras there covering something completely different. And so they kind of felt compelled to... to let me know some sort of legal technique, and I wanted to share that. Um, so that became the point of the piece. And um, 
at the end of the six months, you know, it, it got we uh, we put together a version for a local show we had on uh, KPFA, a local station at the time, and um, that was like it, it was it was different than this piece. It was longer. It had another um, interview with my father, and it had um, uh, a description of what happened when I was ten years old, and um, from there, like. You know, it got some feedback, but um, while we were at Berkeley, another situation happened while we were at our facilities with another one of our students, and he had actually been um, jacked up by the police on, our, on, our, on his way to um, our studio facilities. So, like, in one block from our, our building to the KPFA building, he gets uh, ran up on by, like, three cops slamming him against the the car, <clears throat> the, the hood of the car, and when, you know, while he's with a gang of students and and um, the peer instructor, just on like between a whole, I swear, a block radius. So it was like outside of radio, another forum kind of had to, or another platform kind of took place, which was the police forum, in which um, we invited Berkeley police chiefs and um, or the Berkeley police chief and some officers to our facility. To, to kind of address the issue, and like it was supposed to be from a realistic standpoint, um, it was supposed to be realistic. Like, you know, we would give, we would ask and respond to real concerns that they have of us, and and vice versa. Um, on their part, it kind of turned out to be kind of like a canned answers. Um, like, you know, you know, at the Berkeley Police Department, we stress X, Y, Z, da 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 da. -da. Uh, fill in the blanks. And, um, but um, the highlight of that, though, the student who actually got jammed up, he actually got to, to prove a point and kind of had the, the, the chief stammering, um, kind of backtracking his own words, like, because, you know, he's giving these canned answers, like, you know, we, we look out for our safety and then, you know, sometimes we are wrong and um, we try to engage in people disassociate, I mean, um, disengage proper manner, X, Y, Z. And he's like, he said, you know, if you automatically think, you know, you know what somebody's doing, you're going to, if you're scared all the time or whatever, you're automatically coming out with your guns blazing. And, you know, that's not, that's not a way to, to, to approach people. And he said, he said that and dude didn't really know how to respond. And that was kind of, he kind of put him on, on blast, which was, which was very special. And, um, <laughs> And that was, that was long before the, the NPR version of this had even come, come, to, uh, come to pass. Um, that has some uh, poetry in it, too, uh, from Dalek Brothwaite, who our producer, Nishat Kerwa, um, big up, uh, ran into her. And that, that was like a tremendous help to the piece because that was one of the parts that like, it needed that something kind of more than to just tell the story. But to, you know, we weren't using music and we weren't like using scene tape. Uh, actually, the news camera that was there at the time, I was, I was hoping that they would share the tape that they had. They had audio, they had audio and video of the thing. And um, they kind of they used shield law protection um, <laughs> on me. And that was before Judith Miller. So that had me feeling a special way about that situation, you know. Um, but that's, you know, neither here nor there. Um, so the poem ended up being the part that was taken out for the NPR version, right? Right. Mm -hmm. That as well as um, the part with my father and the, um, and my and me just describing what happened with my uncle. And uh, <clears throat> but 
But uh, interestingly enough, though, while uh, that wasn't allowed in the NPR version, uh, I did submit this piece along with some other pieces we did on racial, um, just racial issues like uh, the N-word and um, a producer in L.A. did a piece about uh, white cultural social awareness group that she's a part of or um, more people are becoming a part of. And I submitted those three pieces or those two pieces in, in addition to uh, the DNA of the Black Experience to the New York Festivals Awards where we won a, that series won gold award um, in social issues. And then gold among the gold. Um, I will say applause. But that was kind of like, you know, it was kind of like a booyah moment almost because I submitted the long version with the poetry and they were kind of strict on like, they didn't, they didn't understand the poetry. So um, just that, that version of the story, I mean, along with our this other stories in the series though, but that version with the poetry being uh, validated was really, was really like something for me to click my heels about, you know. Um, Did you want to play some of the music? Because we had also... Uh, talked about in this uh, in the session bringing up some other form stuff that you listen to or so we're talking about here you have to express yourself in a certain way say to get on morning edition but there's also different ways of expressing you know um, uh, issues that you see in the community do you want to well yeah I mean I'm always been a fan of, of Oakland music Bay Area music uh, too short E40 in particular and um this is a certain song is really relevant uh, nowadays. Too short did about what's going on in um, the streets of Oakland, really across the United States. It's really the same song across across the U.S. from sea to shining sea. But uh, more recently, though, um, there's been some legislation to to reverse some of the uh, disparage disparities um, between powder and crack cocaine sentencing, and um, this is a song Too Short wrote like a while ago, but it, it, it kind of reminds me of that. And it's just, it's, it's very, um, it's very uh, thought provoking. Mm -hmm. So it's called Set Up. It's by Too Short. Um, children might want to. <laughs> <laughs> it's too short. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see how Bay everyone's bands. looking. I need to cover yours. Well, it's nothing. She's, she's fine. She's, <laughs> she's heard she in Luis's room. <laughs> um, and so it's you know it's about three minutes long. So think about it. it could be a three-minute story about the same issue. And I think the idea here is to think about how um, you know younger people are finding different ways to express things. So here we go. Then they changed all the laws. It was a setup. Locking all the young homies up. Getting them all shot dead in the streets. Straight setup. I remember when the world went crazy. Crack cocaine hit the streets in the 80s. Right before the crack, they were smoking fat. They caught a free base and rich folks did that. It's all good, but nobody in the hood put powder and water and cook. They never would. Show niggas how to get it. The rich man's high, got the ghetto addicted. It used to be expensive. Fuck that tension. Turning out cute little bitches that was innocent. Five years later, she tore up from the floor. Niggas used to kiss her, now the bitch smell like throw up. What? I'm telling the truth. The man had a plan that was killing the youth. You 
A very, very short piece from Utah. Care to introduce yourself? Yeah, um, I'm Nick. I'm from Salt Lake City. I live in Colorado now. I'm going to school. But last year, I was part of uh, Spy Hop Productions, um, where we they have a lot of media resources, classes for kids, can t- uh, make movies, record music, uh, have a radio show called Loud and Clear. It's every Saturday night on a local community station. Um, and so we make, we play music, whatever we want to play, uh, talk about issues in the community, make radio essays about what we want. And um, this is one that I made about a neighborhood in Salt Lake that I grew up in that uh, has a lot of local businesses. It's got a lot of culture and it. it's been around for a long time. And then the uh, property owner decided he wanted to tear this block down and build uh, condos and retail space and the office space and kick all the local businesses out and bring in bigger companies and uh, it really kind of made me mad so decided to make a piece about it and kind of get word known about what was going on. And we're just going to hear the first two minutes of it. I think a very interesting man on the street um, in right in the middle there and interesting use of music at the beginning too so here we go.
sugar hood. This is the end. The end of a culture. The end of a world. It's the end of a lifetime and the end of a love. It's the end of everything different and the beginning of something the same. Located at 21st South and 11th East in Salt Lake City, Utah, this has been a local favorite for years. People go there to support local businesses and find a welcoming atmosphere to spend their time. It's a place where you can find a variety in color because of the differences that bring a community together. But now, the block will be torn down to be replaced by high-rise condominiums and office space. At ground level, there will be a place for retail, but it will be too expensive for any of the local businesses to keep their place. This is a change we cannot afford. Sugar House as we know it will be lost forever. Everybody's accepted, and it's not the mainstream stuff. It's just so, so different. It's like the Haight-Ashbury of Utah. <laughs> Once they tear that down, all the local businesses, sure, they might relocate, but it's probably they're not going to survive. It's highly likely that some of these businesses will actually just close. Renovate them. Like, that's much better than tearing it down and building a gateway, too. Well, there's no place else in the city that uh, is a tight-knit community of uh, small locally owned businesses um, that sort of have the same vision of how to do business. It sucks for for Salt Lake because there's not very many neighborhoods in Salt Lake that have a mix of businesses and people. There's actually like different kinds of people that are there instead of the typical mall rats. And the, the brick and glass goes up and it's all of a sudden seven stories and some of the personality is taken out of it. I don't think it's going to be much of a community anymore. Unfortunately, I think that uh, it's going to change the area significantly. So that's just a little sample of it. It's the first time I've heard it. Yeah. First time in a man on the street I've just heard it sucks. It sucks for Salt Lake City. <laughs> so that's what I got. Um, from that, and I think that we're maybe going to move right on to Christian's story because we want to make sure to hear um, that. But and after, I don't know if anyone has any questions at this point. If we could take a few about any of the pieces we've heard so far, and at the end we'll get to the um, music and also some sounds that Tommy has brought us from Kentucky. Any questions or comments, or should we just go forward? All righty then. Um, so, this is Christian, and um, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, where you're from, and um, a little bit about what we're going to hear from you today. Well, my name is Christian, as you already know, and um, <laughs> I'm from Staten Island, New York, and my story is about and my legal status in this country, and me coming from Mexico, where my family is from. So thus the reasons for no photographs and uh, no last name. And we're going to hear um, your piece and then actually um, hear some other aspects of it. So here we have a Christian story that this was on Morning Edition, right? All things considered. All right, this is my neighborhood, Port Richmond in Staten Island, New York. Every morning when I take the bus to school, I see men lining up on Porvetrin Avenue. They're waiting for jobs in construction, roofing, 
or whatever is available. Right now there are about 20 guys out here. They don't look so happy and their clothes doesn't look so clean at all. Sometimes my stepdad's one of them. I work with my stepdad on a few jobs and I know I don't want to spend my whole life breaking concrete for $100 a day. But when I look at the man up on Richard Avenue, I see myself in the future, standing there, waiting, and it makes me feel depressed. I started high school this year, and someday I want to become an engineer, or maybe an archaeologist. I want to learn about my ancestors, the Aztec people, and find some ruins that no one has ever found. There's a Mexican runaway from the border. I heard two illegal Mexicans got married at the top of the fence. My friends are all from different backgrounds, and we make jokes about each other every day. Christian is a true Mexican. Why, you might ask? Because his pants are full of paint, which is what Mexicans always come to work in. Sometimes they even make fake green cards out of construction paper and draw my picture on them. And yeah, that's funny, but I wish they were real. I don't have legal papers. When I was four, my mom carried me across the border. All I remember is helicopters, dogs barking, and I felt like I couldn't breathe because I had dirt in my nose. When we got to Staten Island, I learned how to read and write in English and forgot a lot of my Spanish. I play with my Hot Wheels in the driveway and watch Pokemon TV. But the difference between me and most of my friends is four years from now, they'll be getting ready to go to college. They could become firemen, astronauts, mechanics, anything they want. But when I turn 18, I will either have to go back to Mexico and start all over or hide for the rest of my life living debajo de la raya, under the line, underground. My cousin Mikey is four years older than me, but we play video games and hang out a lot, like if we were brothers. When we were little, Mikey really wanted to become a U.S. Marine. He thought it would make my aunt proud of him and help him pay for college. Even if, you know, it looks scary and everything, it looks really dangerous, I want to go, you know? Definitely I want to go to get, uh, go to college and uh, maybe I can be someone in this country. <laughs> I don't know. When he was in 10th grade, Mikey talked to military recruiters in his high school, but they told him he couldn't join because he was undocumented. When they say no, I'm like, then, you know, I just walk away and just like, I don't know what to do, and uh, it's not like I have two choices. Soon after that, Mikey tried to get a job as a plumber, but he couldn't because he didn't have legal papers. Then he just decided to drop out of high school. It's not just Mikey. I know a lot of kids who drop out. Some of them are already working as day laborers. Some of them join gangs. Most of the people in my church come from Mexico. And our priest, Father Michael, says he sees this all the time. I see in this neighborhood people who in sophomore or junior year of high school, because they do not have citizenship or papers think, well, there's no sense studying or working or doing anything. It gives a person a feeling of what's the use. That's a very sad thing to do to youth, to 
frustrate all that energy and talent. There's no way right now for me to get my legal papers. Even though I was only four years old, the fact that I crossed the border illegally means I can't ever marry someone for my papers. I can't get sponsored by my family. I'm not eligible for a special work visa. I'm completely locked out. Unless Congress makes a change to immigration laws. There's a law they've been debating for a long time. It will make it possible for kids in my situation to become citizens if they finish two years of college or military service. It's called the DREAM Act. Si, si algún día, eh... My mom says, if we don't fix our papers, all I'm going to have is dreams. My little brother, Dominic, was born here. Yeah. So, how does it feel to be an American citizen? Yeah. Okay. How does it feel to know... That you're going to have a better future than I am. <coughs> How does it feel to be a furry monkey? In a cabinet in my mom's room, she keeps things from when Dominic and I were little. There's baby clothes and the blanket that I wore on my shoulders when I was crossing the border. I pull out some pictures from when my little brother was born. He's so funny. In every picture, he's laughing. In one picture, me, my cousin Mikey, and my little brother are all together. Me and Mikey were born in Mexico, and Adami was born here with the rest of my little cousins. And that's it. They're going to have a better life than me and Mikey's going to have. Happy for them, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. For NPR News, I'm Christian in New York. So I just had a question, Christian. Um, I wanted to know, like, if you were scared to, you know, write the story and just talk about it on the radio because of your status. Well, I, I wasn't because I had um, Melissa, Carrie, that always were telling me to do it. So, I mean, stop. <laughs> 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 So, so that um, they gave you the confidence. Yeah, they gave important. me the confidence. It gave me. <laughs> Sorry. <but. laughs> um, and also, I just wanted to express myself and like for the rest of like my cousin Mikey, that was like a chance to put him there because me and him grew up and like we went to the same thing together. And for some other kids in my neighborhood who are sort of like me. So to be able to speak for a lot of tons of people that that can't speak, it's worth the kind of risk for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any? Um, well, actually, maybe we'll just go. Are you ready to hear a little, Laura? <laughs> so we have a. Um, 
rather unsettling clip to play. I, I have a clip that's of it that's two minutes and 47 seconds long, but I might have to stop it way before that. But this is actually something that um, Radio Rookie has brought to our attention, that the, uh, com, what is her title? I don't know, conservative host, talk show host, yeah. Laura Ingram, um, was uh, put Christian's uh, story on her show in a way, <laughs> and actually played violins in the background and had this just excruciating and ignorant, in my opinion, <laughs> commentary uh, going on in the background. So uh, to me, you know, it's not to sort of, um, you know, give her more, <laughs> more airtime in a sense here, but just to listen to how, um, how important this story was, um, how this is a really, um, I don't know how, um, I think there's a lot of people that are seeing the issue a certain way, so how important it was for Christian to get out there, so... Let's listen to a little bit. Another immigration sob story. Undocumented high school students across the country have their hearts set on passage of the DREAM Act. Some 65,000 of them graduate every year, and as things stand, they cannot get loans for college. And even with a college degree, they can only work illegally. It makes many feel hopeless. So what does one New York radio station do? Undocumented high school students in New York are among the most likely to give up and drop out. 15-year-old Christian is trying not to be one of them. He's one of WNYC's radio rookies. And ever since he spent a summer working long hours in a clothing factory, he's been searching for a way to become a citizen. For a while, he thought maybe he could join the military. Uh, I have a question. What does it mean to be a radio rookie for WNYC in New York? Can someone, can we be radio rookies? And then, well, when they want to use someone like poor Christian, they use him. Every morning when I take the bus to school, I see men lining up on Private Train Avenue. They're waiting for jobs in construction, roofing, or whatever is available. Right now, there are about 20 guys out here. They don't look so happy, hmm. and their clothes doesn't look so clean at all. Hmm. Sometimes clean your my stepdad's one of them. I work with my stepdad on a few jobs, and I know I don't want to spend my whole life breaking concrete for $100 a day. But when I look at the men on Provetrin Avenue, I see myself in the future, standing there, waiting, and it makes me feel depressed. This is... Unreal, okay? There's so many angles to this that are obvious. The number one angle is, what is a New York radio station doing creating these absurd reports that are designed to do one thing? They're designed to tug at your heartstrings. They're designed to push forward a political agenda, which is an open borders agenda. And... It's so much like the uh, Geraldo Rivera holding up the kids and saying, Honey, do you miss your mommy and daddy? Do you, you miss your mommy? You think Geraldo wrote this report? Actually, this could be... Maybe this is Geraldo. But I, I love this. Well, I see these men standing out there. Does anyone tell this, uh, this young man that they're violating American law? Christian, did you know that? <laughs> I just can't believe that <laughs> that's, that's what she thinks is actually the, the issue. So... 
Christian, hearing that, I think we talked about it before. You were like, feel even more solid in in the need to get out there. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and I think it is interesting to me that it just more exposes kind of. I think we were talking about on the phone. It, her ignorance on the situation and the fact that she would think that you need to be told that, which was in fact what the story is about, is is um, the this, your status and and something that I th- I want, just want to emphasize before we open it up is that I even myself, have, working with a lot of kids and families that are undocumented, didn't realize how it is just impossible, uh, pr- practically speaking, for Christian to get papers right, even if he married a, a citizen or something like that. I think we were talking about that um, on the phone. So the fact that, again, that to me, it's important to underscore that it, in terms of her sort of having a very accusatory tone and, and um, berating this situation when there is actually you know, not nothing that can be done. So does anyone um, out there want to react on Radio Rookies or anyone want to react to anything we've heard so far, specifically this? incredible piece really <laughs> like a perfect radio piece um, I just wanted to ask the process I mean there's so many good things about it just the sound you collected and your your voice tracking as well is phenomenal I think as well and um, I just wanted to know like how it started how long it took and just maybe start to finish how long you know what, what you did well we started last year like around October and actually, my story was supposed to be about the military and Latinos, but then it sort of went from one point to another. And during that process, we, well, I had a lot of interviews, and then I started seeing that, well, it turned out to be this story. Another comment? Question? I have a question for both Christian and I forget your name. Is it Andre? Anya. Anya. Okay. Yeah. My brain's a little fuzzy. Like Kanye, we know Kay. All right. So um, my question is: Someone asked about the connection between introspection and youth uh, radio production, and I was wondering what you guys felt was the connection between telling the personal part of your stories and then telling a larger story for your community and why you wanted to do it like this. Because I know it was a personal choice and not just a choice made by your training program. So what do you feel like the connection between you telling your personal stories is to telling this larger story about what's going on in your communities? Well, I mean, just I mean, being a part of it, you, you kind of have to zoom in sometimes for people to really understand it. Um, I mean, that's, that's, the whole, that's the whole point, really. Like when, when they get, or when the, the the general public hears about something, they're hearing about it from, you know, people from the outside looking in. Um, so I mean, it's it's more effective to to give your perspective on on what you know maybe somebody can see on uh, CNN on some report that may or may not be accurate, or they don't they don't see the the actual lives that are being affected. Well, Christian, mm, whatever he said. <laughs> um, I'm curious to hear from any of the producers up there, sort of what the mentorship relationship is um, between 
the grown-ups, I guess, the program directors, the coordinators of the group, and then the youth producers. What sort of interaction, what sort of feedback do grown-ups give the kids, that sort of thing, when you're collaborating to do a story? It's different in each group, maybe. Mm -hmm. Should each one of Should we go individually, or? Yeah. We'll have Tom represent us. Um, well, in AMI, uh, it's, it's, it's like uh, we're pretty free to do whatever we want, really, and we just got them to kind of moderate us. Does that, is that what they, is yeah. that the yeah. question? Tell All me, right. Do you want to tell them about your working relationship with Herbie, with him as a filmmaker, oh. and how he helped you with this piece? Yeah, like, uh, they're filmmakers and, and, and people who do other things in media at the Apple shop, and they have a lot to do with everything, mm -hmm. so it's really like, just like a, a big community of people, like an artist and stuff that'll come in and talk to you and like, they've did things like that before like they they like recommend a movie or something or something mm -hmm. that we needed to listen to like we listened to um or we watched this movie about uh these jack tells if you ever heard them like jack and the beanstalk jack tales yeah like rabbits no <laughs> like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> like, oh oh right right yes uh-huh like jack and the beanstalk and like and there's like tons of stories like that and they came from like they came from England or wherever, whenever, uh, whenever people came here. And there's just a ton of stories, and like he, like he was just showing us like that's where some of it began. And there was this guy who could like tell him like nobody else. What was his name? The, the guy who tells the Jack Tales. Anyways. The Jack Tale <laughs> man. <laughs> Anyways. So yeah, the artistic so, inspiration. Yeah. And, um, and I just wanted to say we're going to go a little bit over because we started late, but if you need to be mosine then that's good um and i think there's uh, the artistic uh, mentorship and sometimes with us i don't claudia correct me if i'm wrong but it's it's um since i might know the audience more of what's you know that's going to be sort of receiving the audio as, as far as our station particularly is very uh public radio kind of audience older um and more caucasian i guess you would say um and so i might know for example that that our audience doesn't know what norteños and sereños means so i'm kind of that voice of in the mentorship process of just saying well they're not gonna maybe understand that term or would you say or they and to, to kind of just say well you might want to say it this way so mm -hmm. that they're a little bit more clear almost translating or interpreting sometimes yeah kind of like spanish a little bit but you know <laughs> interpretation <laughs> into public yeah. radio english <laughs> um i wanted to share with you uh some sounds that uh tommy had brought because we wanted to share some sounds here at the end and um should i read the lyrics over that maybe song? maybe could you just describe generally what's being said because i'm not sure if it's going to do you think or you really want to yeah. I, I can read the lyrics. Okay, read the lyrics, yes. Okay, so um, Tommy's our superstar sound gatherer because I asked people to gather some sounds, and Anya also has a song that we'll hopefully we'll have time to play as well. And um, he uh, gathered some, so we're first going to hear some, I think, a song that's on vinyl about a bird. Um, and it's in Spanish, but he's going to speak the English translation over it. And it's an old Tex Mex vinyl record, right? Yeah, from like the 20s or 30s. Right, and then after that, there's him flipping through AM radio with some very interesting comments about 
Russian and Halloween <laughs> and things like that. And what do we? Oh, and a clip from Ernest Goes to Camp. And what's after that? Um, and there's the clock ticking. Oh, there's a clock ticking, which is a real clock. I didn't believe it, but. <laughs> and and there's, then. Uh, uh, there's like a piece from an Apple Shop film. Oh, and a piece from Apple Shop. And to me, the interesting thing is that the, the um, Mexican music at the beginning, to me, sounds a lot like that Appalachian music that you hear kind of later. So I myself was noticing all these kind of connections with the two. There's, there's also like the beginning of another Tex-Mex song, mm. but it's just like the guitar introduction. So I'll get it going? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, guys. Oh, whoops. Hey, hey. One night, a lovely wounded bird took refuge in my window. Feeling compassion, I took him in a beautiful cage and looked after him night and day. And, I'd, and when I'd hear the warble of his song, with great sadness, I would also sing. And this is what she would sing. Little bird, little bird, prisoner within your cage, I too am languishing, a prisoner of love. Prisoner of love. There was a man full of flattery and deceit, and I quickly fell in love with him. When I found out my lover was untrue, disillusioned, I broke up our affair. Even today, after such a long time has gone by, I realize that I still love him, and whenever I think of that little bird, I sigh with great sadness.
I want to owe your money back. Oh, no, Eamon, okay. you're not a... If you're speaking Russian, I don't understand. Okay, can we boot it Downtime always sounds bad. Oh, well. This is from an Apple Shop movie. Uh, 
called the Ramsey Trade Fair, and this was a, a guy named Bill Denham, and he was like standing out in the middle of a crowd. He's like this blind guy who, pl who played guitar and, and harmonica, and he was out in the middle of the crowd just playing this song, and they got it. It's I think it's from like the 70s. Oh, it's from an Apple Shot movie from the 70s? Mm-hmm. So we'll have a few more moments of this and a few last questions if you want. for top <laughs> Any last questions? I know people are need to head out, but if you want to come up to the microphone and ask anyone here questions. Um, hi, I just wanted to thank all the youth producers. Um, your pieces were one of the most exciting things that I've heard here yet, um, all, all of them. And especially, Christian, I heard your piece, I don't know, a month or two ago, um, I guess right after it came out. And I was, I've actually been trying to pull myself together <laughs> to make a comment because it always gets me really emotional. Um, thank you for making it. It was really brave. I sent it to everyone I know. And the DREAM Act didn't pass, which is so unfortunate. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm just so ashamed of my country for, for that. But uh, thank you so much. That's it. Thank you. Thank you.